0: connect podcast series is brought to you by talent talks and life online welcome i'm karen cole editor-in-chief of talent talks and life online Hi, Caitlin it's so great to have you back with us today to continue our discussion on imposter syndrome and essentially in this episode we are going to be focusing on the different types of imposters coincides with your recent article on talenttalks.net so welcome
1: thanks so much Karen it's great to be back
0: fantastic so let's kick off exactly how many types of imposters are there So we have five
1: types of imposter syndrome. Essentially, imposters tend to set unrealistic and unsustainable standards of competence. And so what tends to happen is whenever we fall short or we perhaps make some kind of error, we believe that we are therefore not competent and this evokes some sort of shame. So what happens is that everybody experiences this failure-related shame in different ways. And the reason for that is that they don't all define competence in the same way. So what tends to happen is people create these unconscious rules around competence. And they say things such as, I should, I always, I never, as an example, if I were really intelligent, capable, competence. I would never be confused. I would always understand what I'm reading and I should get it right the first time. So there's been a lot of research around how people define shame and that has helped us to further define the five different types of imposter syndrome. And so the five types at a high level are the perfectionist, the expert, the soloist, the superwoman, superman or super student and then finally the natural genius or great mind.
0: So each of these different styles you were just alluding to there what are some of these triggers? How do we know to watch out for them? And you know what are we kind of looking for? How do we manage ourselves in those situations? So I think
1: understanding each of the different types of imposter syndrome really helps us to understand the trigger points. And so I'll take you through each of the five and a few points that generally create anxiety for people. And I think a lot of this is linked to anxiety. So for example, the perfectionist really focuses on how something should be done. So if they get 99 out of 100 for something, they will focus, of course, on that 1% or that one point and they will feel embarrassed and ashamed about it. What they then tend to do is micromanage people they tend to not trust people because people might not deliver work to their expected standard. They, they struggle to get tasks done because they want it to be perfect. So some of the triggers to look out for or well, some of the things to really focus on are ensuring that you plan ahead of time and that you really ensure that you tackle the task and you are mindful of the fact that it won't be 100%. Setting yourself up for expecting it to be 100% at the start of the process is just going to lead to disappointment and shame. And so, making provision for some potential errors, making some provision for the fact that it won't be perfect is going to help you more realistically manage your expectations. And I know that as a perfectionist, that that concept is, you know, fundamentally irks me because I feel that 80% is not good enough. I feel 100% is the only required acceptable standard. But I think practically and, you know, using numbers and data to help manage those expectations and ensure that you set realistic Goals and expectations will go a long way to helping you manage that shame and manage those unrealistic expectations. From an expert perspective, you know, the expert is really concerned with what they know and how much they know. And that becomes exceptionally important. So I think about. Academics or highly accomplished or highly learned people who have multiple qualifications, those are the sort of people that we would put into this category. And so, any gap in knowledge, especially in an area in which they're considered an expert, any gap in that knowledge leads to them feeling that they're not competent and they feel embarrassed. The reality is that even the most experienced person. Even the most deep subject matter expert, the person who knows loads about a particular topic has to learn new things. If you think about the environment in which we're working and the rate and pace at which things are changing and the rate at which information is being shared, we have to learn new things. We cannot stagnate in that area. So I think the things to look out for is if a role or a company is saying that it's not necessary for you to learn in a particular area or to grow or to do research and gain new knowledge so that's a, a red flag for me because that company will struggle to stay ahead of the game. And it means that they are not open to people sharing new information or bringing new ideas. And so that kind of puts that expectation on the expert that their knowledge is that is sufficient and they don't need to know anymore and they don't need to grow and learn. So it really creates the expectation that there is no gap for change, for learning, for not knowing. And so really trying to keep things in perspective around the world in which we're learning and looking for different opportunities to learn. It doesn't have to be only a formal learning intervention. It can be learning on the job. It can be coaching and mentoring. It can be leveraging social systems such as team meetings. And just, you know, learning in the minute. And so looking for opportunities to learn helps us realize that it is not a stagnant, once-off process. And that may go some way to helping us be more open to learning. So the soloist is someone who feels that they cannot rely on anybody else to complete a task. And that may be for various reasons. So this the soloist wants to do all the work themselves and Really, not want to ask for help because asking for help or delegating equates to failure and therefore shame. So, the challenge with a soloist wanting to complete all the work themselves is that it creates the impression, especially if you're managing a team, that you don't trust people, it really disempowers people because it's not allowing them to shine, it's not allowing them to do really well in their own role and focus on the things that they're really good at. And so you are robbing them of that opportunity and you are also robbing yourself of an opportunity to do the work that you really love. Because what tends to happen is because you take on everybody's work because you don't trust them to do the work and you are terrified that if if someone else can do the work, it might show up your incompetence. Or your perceived incompetence, and so it's not that you are jealous of people. It's not that you don't want other people to do well. You're just so terrified that you might be caught out and revealed as as not being able to do the job to the required expectation. And so that is why you keep you keep all the work to yourself. And so what happens is when you don't delegate, you don't share the workload, you become burnt out because you become a workaholic. You then set these expectations that you can do all the work and not only can you deliver it, but you can deliver it to unrealistic expectations. And so, you set that precedent. And of course, we can't always operate at 100% and burn the candle at both ends. And so, we tend to then burn out, we become resentful, it impacts our relationships. And so, I think changing the rules in your head around, around what failure and competence and shame, specifically competence, looks like, will start to help us manage this. And, and one of the things that we can change or rewire in our brains is that doing work alone or doing sharing the workload does not equal incompetence. It actually equals uh, collaboration, freedom. It equates to autonomy. So re- reframing it to kind of the positive impacts of competence will help us. The last two are firstly the super, the superwoman or superman and super students and I always think about parents. Uh, And mothers in particular with this role. These imposters are concerned with how many roles they can juggle and how well they can do these roles. So, if we we think about multitasking, we've tended to glorify multitasking and say, oh, you know, if, if I think about that movie with Sarah Jessica Parker, I think it's, I don't know how she does it. You know, she's an executive, she's a mom, she organizes parties, she's involved in her parent-teachers committee, etc. And so, they've glorified the the multitasker. But in reality, the multitasker wears themselves very thin because they can only offer parts of themselves to all of these roles, Uh, whether it's a family or as a family member, a friend, employee, member, a host or hostess, a spouse. And so, we're not really giving enough of ourselves in those roles to really make it work and to really do it, do those relationships justice. And so we always feel like we're not giving enough and we're failing. And so what we do is then we take on more work because we think if we can do more, then people will see the value that I can bring. And of course, that is just a road. It's a downward spiral. It's a vicious cycle. And so being aware that we only have so much of ourselves that we can split ourselves into and trying to really focus our energy on fewer roles but really Doing the best that we can in those roles and really giving it our energy and our positive focus will help us rather than giving bits and pieces to, a, to of ourselves to too many roles. And I think identifying our support system w- when we are the superwoman, superman or super students, realizing that there is a support system available to us if we tap into it, if we ask for help and say, OK, I can't host book club this month just because I've got 10 other things on the go. Let me ask somebody else this month. And then in a few months, when I get to it, I'll do it there. And so I think. Just reaching out to your support system and asking for help is a really good starting point because you'll be surprised at how many people are there wanting to help, wanting to support, we just don't let them. And then finally, the natural genius or the great mind. This poster really focuses on the speed and ease at which which they achieve tasks. I often think about when I was teaching, you know, we had these parents who would and teachers who would put pressure on these students that they were gifted and that they, they Oldest sibling, well, they were head boy and they were captain of the team and they just excelled in maths and they were top of academics. And so what happens is this poor younger sibling comes into the school environment and there is this... Assumption that this person, that the sibling should naturally achieve the same way that their sibling had. And what we do is we set them up for failure. We put incredible pressure on them. Any additional length of time that it takes to master a task, immediately we assume this type of imposter assumes that they're not competent. And so we have to be realistic. Not everything comes naturally. It takes time, especially because we are receiving lots of new information. The complexity of the task tasks that we are completing the operate the world that we're operating in is very different and so if we take into consideration all of that complexity the increased learning agility that is required of people i think that that context help us helps us understand that not everything is concrete and simple and straightforward and if we we open ourselves up to that and just be mindful of that environment, I think it might help us realize that we can take longer to complete a task. And really, if we think about the expectation that we would put on our children or to put on those around us, we... As an imposter would not have the same expectation we wouldn't expect our children to get to just know everything instantly and get to grips with everything we would give them grace we would grow them we would help them learn we would coach them but we don't apply the same rules to ourselves
0: in a lot of what you were speaking around now and describing the different types of imposters and their triggers you mentioned a lot about having to change that narrative how do we go about defining a new narrative for ourselves? Valerie Young, she, she sets up the Imposter Syndrome
1: Institute. And I think one of the most relevant statements that I've read in her research was around feeling like an imposter. She says that you may want to stop feeling like an imposter and, uh, because, of course, it, it's a really frightening thing. But the reality is that you will not stop feeling like an imposter until you stop thinking like one. You have to start thinking differently. And so the way we do that is all around cognitive reframing. We can shape and change the neural pathways in our brain. We can change the way that we think through deliberate and focused reframing. And it's really around consistency. I think any habit that we want to create, whether it's eating well, whether it's in any sphere, we have to practice it regularly, consistently, Really, on a daily basis. And so, in the article, I've shared some tips around how you can reframe negative thoughts. The first is to recognize that you are having a negative thought. And we can immediately recognize when we're having one because we feel shame, we blame, we feel embarrassed, we feel upset, we feel anxious, stressed. So anytime we're having that sort of one of those emotions, that for us is a trigger and we can immediately recognize that that is a negative thought. The second thing we can do is identify what triggered the emotion. If something, let's say we've submitted a piece of work and our manager mentioned that there uh, was a grammatical error. It is a small one, but it's a gra- grammatical error. And immediately we feel embarrassed and we think, gosh, I am incompetent. The, the work that I've done is just not up to scratch. And I knew that I would mess this one up. To identify what triggered the emotion, we'd need to check a couple of things. Are we ignoring a fact are we exaggerating something or are we minimizing the importance of something so in this case we i would say that we are exaggerating the error and assuming that our boss or our manager has confirmed our, our incompetence and that the work is in fact not up to scratch so we are exaggerating here the next thing is to challenge these the thinking challenge the thought where is their proof are the thoughts accurate and can you find another explanation, the assumption that you're making? So in this case, is there proof that the manager said you are incompetent and this work is not up to scratch? No, all they said was there's a grammatical error, please fix it before you submit it. And what we need to do is go through this questioning or challenging process to really find evidence to support us in identifying whether or not what they're saying is in fact true or is it an assumption. And so the imposters need evidence, the hard numbers to see that in fact, it isn't necessarily true. And so I think the more that we question and the more that we we look for the, d- the data, it will help give us evidence that we are either exaggerating, minimizing or ignoring something. Reframing is the final step in the process. So now that we've recognized the thought, we've identified what may have triggered the emotion, we have challenged and confirmed that there is in fact no proof to our assumption we then need to start reframing and we can start rewriting the narrative to that. So we can start saying, okay, yes, I made an error, but in fact, 99% of the, the work was really good. And the fact that my manager didn't necessarily say it was excellent doesn't mean that it isn't. It simply means that it was It was up to standard because he didn't comment, he or she didn't comment on the rest of the work. And so it's really about trying to reframe it and trying to put it in a more positive light that is more aligned to reality. It's not about putting rose-tinted glasses on and saying, oh, I am amazing, but it is looking for evidence and it is finding factual information to help us reframe it according to reality. Because the challenge, I, I think, is that we are just receiving so much information on a daily basis. The millions of messages we are receiving and we have to filter each one of those, assimilate them and try and do something with the information. And so if we create this, this path in our brain or this, this cycle in our brain, it our brain is lazy. It will, will default to these preconceived ideas, these preconceived rules. That we've got in our brain already because there is so much information we're trying to filter. And so it looks for the the quickest shortcut. So if we train our brain to reframe things and to create new rules, our brain will then automatically work, you know, shortcut to those rules because it's then comfortable and that becomes a a new simpler path for it.
0: Caitlin I've really enjoyed our time with you today and just going through the different types of imposters and how important it is for us to identify those trigger points for us but more importantly in those situations to really just practice that pause and reframe that and essentially rewrite that narrative for ourselves for long-term benefits so thank you very much
1: thanks again Karen I, I love being part of the series and I really hope that the listeners out there I get a lot of value from it